Welcome back to the Gospel of Luke. It's been a minute. We've spent uh, the last maybe six or seven weeks talking about the spiritual disciplines and then leading up to, um, to the triumphal entry and then, uh, and then Easter Sunday. What a sweet season and I'm fired up and ready to be back into Luke. So, um, and we'll be here, you know, we'll, we'll take this next section of Luke between here and probably the middle of fall and we'll be ready for Christmas. Um, and then we'll jump back into Luke next year. You know, it's a long book. We'll take it in sections. But just to remind you where we've been in Luke, this has been the, the season where just, we've kind of just wrapped up this season that, that scholars call the Galilean springtime. It's been a really wonderful, life-giving book. Um, not, I mean, the whole thing is wonderful and life-giving, but this has been just victory after victory. There's been little resistance here and there. We've had pockets of like Jesus being rejected, but not any real like persecution has set in uh, quite yet. And <clears throat> people are following Jesus. And, and it's this time that Luke uh, records up in Galilee where really there's great growth in the ministry. There's a lot of people following Jesus. We started with the birth narrative We've heard stories about Jesus having power over nature and over demons and over illness. We've seen stories like that in Israel and then also in Gentile territory, which is a big, one of Luke's big ideas is that God is, uh, Jesus is God here, Jesus is God there. Have you heard of a place? Jesus is God there too. Have you heard of another planet? Yep, still God, right? Like that, that he came to be the Jewish Messiah and also the Messiah of the entire world. And praise the Lord, we are sitting here maybe at the ends of the earth. And we know the story, like the story got to the ends of the earth. Here we are, Seaside, California. The story found a, a kind of a crescendo in, in chapter 9. If, you're, if you have a Bible open, just kind of peruse. If you don't have a Bible open, open a Bible, man. There's a church. Come on, bring Grab a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 10. There's a Bible in front of you if you want, or also there's this thing called the internet. I'm sure you can find a Bible. Um, so, um, so chapter 9, if you kind of click through there, you go, okay, the feeding of the 5,000, one of the most profound miracles of Jesus. He is the bread of life. Um, it, we hear Peter's confession uh, that really is the kind of the, the central theme of the first part of the gospel, that Jesus is in fact the Christ of God. From there, we saw the transfiguration. Jesus, like very much holding court and being superior to even these Old Testament saints um, and seeing Jesus and a few of these disciples, seeing Jesus in his glory. And then immediately, Jesus starts talking about the crucifixion. So at the end of verse of chapter nine, and now like in full as we get into chapter 10, we're very much turning and starting a new, a new section of the book, a new part of the journey. The disciples have, been, have, have become so convinced of who Jesus is by the end of chapter 9 that their big questions are, which among them is the greatest, right? They've started going like, hey, this looks pretty amazing. Jesus is going to wreck shop. I think I should be second in command. I'm clearly the handsomest, right? Like whatever those arguments look like, I'm not sure, but they are so convinced of the totality of the, 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 the deity of Christ that they're just arguing about you know, how, how, who's going to be second in command when we get there. But this does start a different part of the journey. The springtime of Galilee is over, and the long road to the cross has begun. 
And I use that term long road both figuratively and literally. This is kind of a travel log. The next kind of 10 chapters of Luke are very much like the conversations and events that happened on the walk from Galilee to the capital city of Jerusalem where Jesus would go to the cross. Now, this was not the only time Jesus made this. Surely he made this trip over and over as a child going to the feast in Jerusalem. We have records of him celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem years previous. So he's made this trip many times, but it is no doubt that this time is unique in that he is not only walking to the Passover feast, but he's walking to the cross. The people walking with him don't know that. And so we're going to see them wrestle with what exactly is he talking about. But Jesus does know it. And that is very clear too, that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem and he has gathered followers. And if you (coughs) or I thought that we were the king of the universe and had gathered a bunch of followers, we would not be walking to a cross. And yet Jesus is actually the king of the universe and has gathered followers, but he knows that a price must be paid because of sin, and he's walking to the cross. The end of chapter 9 um, you know, ended with this discussion of what it will cost a person to follow Jesus. And you have to think some of this might have seemed even like, Jesus, why are you making such a big deal? You know, he, he said, well, to follow me, you got to give up the guarantee of comfort, even a roof over your head. I don't even have any place I'm sleeping tonight. You must give up the, the conventions and traditions that you're familiar with, even the customs involved with burying a loved one. Remember like, hey, we're Jewish, burial's a big deal, I'm just going to go bury my dad. And Jesus goes, no, man, that's not how it works. You got to give up customs, you got to give up traditions, you just follow me. And most of all, you never look back. And I imagine when the thing that typified Jesus' ministry in Galilee was healing and and power over demons to say, Jesus, why would I ever look back? Remember, there's the verse about once you put your hand to the plow, don't look back. Well, when all you've known of Jesus' ministry is power over this and power over that and power over this, and you haven't seen the suffering were required yet. Jesus here is saying, look, we're going to the cross, guys. And there's no looking back. You make a decision. You follow Jesus. And then you follow him to the cross. So as we pick up in chapter 10, the tone has changed a little bit. There's a severity that is looming. It's Jesus is walking and he's teaching, but he's also warning and he's challenging. Also, the mission is expanding. You know, this this passage will feel pretty familiar. It was a while ago that we were at the beginning of chapter 9, but but the beginning of this chapter has a lot in common with the beginning of chapter 9. In the beginning of chapter 9, you'll remember that Jesus sent out the 12, and here we're going to see Jesus send out the 70, or 72, you can have an argument. Come on Wednesday night if you want to argue about that, we'll argue. I'll give you a little thumbnail sketch of it here, but but, um, mm, good ancient scholars arguing about whether it's 70 or 72. Go to Bible college. That's the kind of stuff you get, you get to spend a lot of time with. But instead of 12, now there's 72. These are a lot of names we don't know. When the 12 went out, it was the 12 apostles. Now it's just the 72. Starts after this. Uh, so I just, I, I just want to walk through this passage with you. And it's kind of long. I'll talk fast. Buckle up. But... Um, but I want to walk through this passage with you, and I just have one question for you at the end of this. So that's, that's the whole time together today. Let me just walk through this passage, and then let me just ask you one question. 
So after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two. Um, so that'll feel familiar, sent on ahead of him to do like the, bring the message of uh, Jesus' message to towns before he gets there. Two by two, got to have two witnesses. Um, also, things need to be done in teamwork. This happened at the beginning of chapter nine too. So into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So like, like chapter nine, they go two by two ahead of him. Some of your Bibles, how many of your Bibles say 70 went? Yeah, some of them say 70. Okay, so there's a lot of, of really old, trustworthy manuscripts that say 70. And there's also a lot of really old, trustworthy manuscripts that say 72. So modern scholars kind of go, eh, I'm not really sure. But I'll tell you why I like 70 better. 70 makes a lot of sense. Because there is a passage in Genesis 10 that talks, that names all of the nations, like there's, there's God's people, and then there's all of the nations in the world, and there's 70 of them. As you're reading through the table of nations, there's 70 of them. Also, in the way um, Israel had been organized, you had the 12 uh, fathers, you had the 12 tribes that all go back to these 12 men. And then also you had a group of leaders in Jerusalem called the Sanhedrin. Would anybody like to guess how many sit in the Sanhedrin? There are 70. So in my opinion, I wouldn't live and die here, but Jesus is constituting a brand new kingdom where what it looked like to be one of the heads of a tribe used to be you were one of the ancient fathers of the faith. And now it's asked of fishermen and tax collectors and the least of these. What it meant to used to be like the ruling class was these people in the Sanhedrin that took their job very seriously, these 70. And now Jesus is calling a brand new set. I think if you were there, it would be no doubt that, um, that this number means something. That Jesus is drawing from these Galilean peasants a brand new order, a brand new kingdom with not just the Old Testament traditions at the head, but with him as the king. Anybody shivering? Like, does that sound amazing to anybody else? Just me. Good. I'll keep going then. We'll find something in here for you. Um, verse two, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers uh, into his harvest. How interesting is it that it is the people who are sent that are asked to pray that God would send workers. I think that we have done something as we talk about ministry. Jesus is just teaching us about ministry. Like, pay attention. This, this is what it means to be called. This is what it means to be sent. And while their situation was a little different, there are a lot of things that we can pull out and go, man, I need to listen to that. Jesus did not say, who feels like going? Okay, you go. Who didn't have time to go? Why don't you guys be in charge of prayer? But rather it was those who he sent that he said, as you're going, pray that God would send more workers. There is a huge difference. And I've just noticed this. There is a huge difference between, oh my gosh, there's problems in the world and somebody ought to do something about it. You know who it should be? the church. I feel like people use the word the church and it's like this nebulous, we can't really describe what it is. It's just out there. And I'm part of the church when it comes to like Jesus is coming back for his church. But when it comes to like the church should do something about that, I'm less, I, I less identify with whatever that organization is. 
And I think it's pretty easy to go, you know what the church should do. Jesus doesn't say, why don't you sit around and gripe about what those 70 people should do while they're going? Rather, he says, hey, I'm calling you, I'm sending you, pray for help. I'm calling you, I'm sending you. And it might be discouraging. You might get out there and go, there's a lot of work, there's a lot of harvest here, and there's not very many workers. Well, pray as you are harvesting. Pray that, commit that to God. Pray that God would send somebody else to be alongside you. It makes me think deeply about what it means to like be and what it means to do in the kingdom of God. We don't want to be people. What, how does our mission statement start? David just said it to you today. Be love. It's very important that you don't work your way into the kingdom of God. That is vitally important to understand. You can't earn it. Jesus just loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. It's something you receive. It's something you respond to, but it is not something that you earn. You do not do so much that you are in the kingdom of God. And yet some of us are frozen by grace. Dallas Willard said that, that we say there is nothing I can do to make God love me more. And so nothing is exactly what I'm going to do. And that doesn't sound like a healthy relationship to anybody. No, pray that people will join you in the harvest, not pray that God will send people while we sit around and don't go. So as it relates to being in the kingdom, man, we just be loved. We just say, God adopted me. I'm his, I'm his child. I, that's how adoption works. The, the, you know, just God chose me and adopted me. I'm his son. Praise the Lord. I have all the inheritance of life in the family of God. But then as it relates to ministry, we are motivated by that grace to go do good works in the world. We're not frozen by that grace. We're motivated to be sent. Because... When the coals touch your mouth and you are cleansed, you fall on your knees and say, send me. Are you with me? Do you remember the scene in Isaiah? Oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips and God makes a way for Isaiah to be forgiven, to be cleansed, and then says, who will I send? And Isaiah goes, after what you've done for me, send me. And I think every person who really understands forgiveness at some point must fall on their knees and say, God, send me. What could I do to respond to this great love? So pray for God to send people in the culture, but pray it as you are going. Pray for workers as you are working. Don't you love too that Jesus doesn't go pray for bloggers or I don't know what the common, I don't know what the, the, ancient, yeah, ancient, ancient version of that would be, but he says, pray for workers. We don't need scholars. We don't need experts. We We only need so many leaders. We need workers, people who will do the work that God's called them to do. So Jesus sent out ministers telling them to pray for fellow ministers. Man, I would encourage you to have a ministry, and I would encourage you to pray while you do it. The power of prayer in ministry cannot be understated. But for many of us, we hide behind prayer as a way to avoid being sent. The call to follow Jesus is a call to move. You cannot sit in your tax collector booth going, yep, somebody ought to follow that guy. 
You don't sit in your fishing boat going, what an amazing catch. It's going to take me a few weeks to work all this out. Now, the call to follow Jesus is the call to leave your old life and follow him. You got to do stuff. There has to be change in your life. And then the call to be sent is also a call to doing. There is a being. I am saved. I am I do belong to God. I, that is my identity. And with that identity comes mission. Prayer is so important because sometimes it's lonely. I know why Jesus said, hey, pray for help, because he was sending these people into hostile territory where the gospel probably wasn't very wanted. And he's sending peasants. He's not sending like scholars that people are excited to welcome. He's just like sending, you know, just people that, that just left their dad's fishing business not too long ago, you know? And they're going into these villages and they're like, hey, the kingdom of God has come near. And I bet that got lonely. I've said many times, I don't see enough chapters in books about mission, about the loneliness that can be associated with going into the world on mission. We all read stories. We read chapters in books about there I was, and I told somebody about the Lord, and the whole office got converted. And for every one of those stories, there's a story where the whole office told you to shut up. And it can feel lonely. So while you're going, pray. Amen. Don't give up. Amen. Don't stop. Instead, pray for help. Amen. We must be people of quiet and prayer and just being, resting in God's love, and we must also be people of action. The love of Christ compels us into the world with good works, with the message of the kingdom, with the message of the empty tomb. Verse 3, so go your way, and behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. We talked about this a lot in, in, in uh, chapter 9, so I won't cover all of this in depth, but not only will ministry be discouraging occasionally, and that's what prayer and friendship and togetherness is for, but it will also occasionally be outright dangerous. Just like the 12 were sent, the 70 or 72 are to rely on the Lord and the kindness of others as their means of provision. Now, this isn't always true. Like there's a lot in the New Testament about counting the cost. Can you actually pull this off? Don't just get fired up and charge. No, actually decide, you know, if, if you're going to war, you, you, as a king, if you're going to war, you decide if your army's big enough, right? It's like that in ministry too. Don't, um, you know, I'm a big fan of like naturally I'm just ready fire, aim. You know, I think the New Testament would say, no, switch that around. Ready, aim, fire. Okay. Um, so, so it's not always like this, but in this particular mission, Jesus says, look, you're going to have to learn. And we talked about this in chapter nine. These men, these people are going to be the first generation of Christians. There's going to be a lot of suffering in their life. They're going to have to relearn to rely on God. There's going to be a lot of times where there's no money in their pocket. There's going to be a lot of times where they go, man, we're in jail. What do we do? And so Jesus wants to train them. And he says, so don't, don't take a a lot of stuff. Travel light on this mission. That served them well later. But then there's this other line that's not in chapter 9. And it says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. And I, man, you can't spiritualize that to make that sound like fun. We live in such a, well, I told them kind of culture. We live in such a, like, well, I have to defend myself and I have to be on the offense. Here's the thing. Lambs are kind of dumb and have no offense or defense. Lambs trying to get away from a wolf is a bad day for a lamb and a tasty day for a wolf. 
<coughs> lambs don't have teeth. Lambs don't have speed. Lambs don't have horns. I might be a lamb. <laughs> Need to be sheared. <laughs> Sheep are even defenseless. Sheep don't have any offense. And it's not even like being a sheep. It's like being a lamb. Can you feel a little frolicky? <laughs> and Jesus is like, I'm sending you out like this lamb into a pack of wolves. Jesus says, you see this defenseless little lamb? No offense, no defense. Nobody's going to be afraid of this thing. This lamb walks into a wolf pack and goes, the kingdom of God is near. The wolves are not quaking. It's going to have to be the Holy Spirit that changes the heart of wolves. But he's going to use lambs to do it. And so we don't get fired up and aggressive. And we don't go on the offense. And we don't play defense. We don't have any of that. Rather, Jesus says, I'm sending you as this defenseless little creature into a place that it might be scary and dangerous. And I want you to trust me. In Scripture, we are told to give a defense for why we believe the gospel. We are not told to defend ourselves. Can you make that distinction? <laughs> Keep working. It is our job to say, why would you believe this stuff? And to have an answer for that. To say, let me tell you the story of how Jesus changed my life. Let me tell you the story about how I've become convinced that the tomb is empty. Let me tell you the story of how I've become convinced that my life is safer and healthier and I'm thriving more if I place my trust in Jesus instead of placing my trust in me. We are not told to throw punches while that story is being told. Do you remember Jesus before Pilate? We'll talk about this again in a second. Do you remember Jesus before Pilate? If ever there was an outmatched argument, Pilate trying to trap Jesus. That was not a fair fight. And yet Jesus, silent as a what? As a lamb before shears. Scripture, we're told to be ready to give a defense for why we believe. We aren't told to attack. No attacks on people who think differently. Oh, but sometimes they're so wrong. Somebody's got to tell them. No retaliation when we are attacked. But I have my rights. No teeth, no horns, no claws. Just a whole flock of adorable little lambs. Yeah, you, you're adorable. Letting the wolves know how much the shepherd loves them. Making sure that the wolves know that God is not far away from them, but if they would just repent, that they could live life in the kingdom of God under the good shepherd too. And wolves there are. There were then, they are now, and many times their attacks hurt. And it stops us from going because we go, Jesus, I went out there and people were mean. Yeah, wolves were around. And it makes us hide behind things like, well, I'm just going to pray for missionaries. Every missionary I've ever heard says, pray for us. I'll do that occasionally. But go into my culture? Well, I pray for missionaries. 
But do you remember Jesus before Pilate? John 18.36 said this. Jesus answered as Pilate's questioning, as Pilate is saying, oh, you're a king? Where are your followers? And Jesus says, look, my kingdom is not of this world. My, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Guys, our king is not the king. He's the king of seaside for sure. He is the king over everything. And yet, as he is calling us, he says, look, we're not trying to be, we're not trying to overthrow seaside. What we're trying to do is follow the eternal king. Because we aren't trying to conquer the kingdom of earth. We are joining with Jesus in rescuing it. Can I say that slower? We are not trying to conquer the kingdom of earth. We are joining with Christ in the work of rescuing it of reconciling all things to him. What would it be if we won a few arguments, gained some power, and lost souls? No, let's not turn into Bible-wielding wolves. Are you with me? <laughs> yeah, I'm a wolf, but now I got a Bible. <laughs> Rather, let's go like lambs, trusting Jesus for our protection turning to prayer when it's discouraging, working together in community. Verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. The word shalom, right? Just like, hey, it's all good. Like, that's, hope, that, hope things are great in here. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. And do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So again, there's no need to bust down doors. This is not by your work. This is not like that you went to the leader of the town and kicked in the door and said, guess what? You're a Christian now. And you know, the, the church, like the medieval church especially, we have a lot of history of like, hey, do you guys want to be Christians? No, we don't. How about now? You know, and we just have to repent. We just have to repent of that mission strategy. Because it's just not what God called us to do. That's like wolf missions. Rather, Jesus says, go. The first place you go, say shalom. It's like offering friendship. Hey, man, my friendship is here with you. And if they go, we'll get lost. You go, okay, thank you very much. And if they say, you're welcome, then go in. Don't jump from house to house. Don't wait for a better offer. Accept the hospitality. Eat whatever's put before you. There's a humility, but also an ability to say, hey, I'm trusting in God, and this is how he's providing. Verse 9 says, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come to you. Okay, so this is the actual job description, and I think it would be a wonderful job description for us too. There's two tasks. First, heal the sick, and two, proclaim the kingdom. Practical help and clear preaching. You want to know what the church should be doing? Practical help and clear preaching. Those are the two parts of Jesus' ministry. Those should be the two parts of our ministry. It must not be service alone. It must not just be practical help because what if we solved all of the social problems in the world and people still didn't know the Lord? They would be still suffering eternal damnation and we think that's bad. But also, we cannot be those who say, I'm here to tell you about Jesus and have the culture go, well, we're hungry, and us go, shut up, I care about your heart. Like, why would they listen if they don't know we love them? 
And you go love them, they're a bunch of wolves. They're mean and they're wrong about all kinds of stuff. They say wrong things. They have wrong views. And they don't act like Christians. And so we go, I'll be a wolf too. No. No, we go in the love and kindness of God and say, can I tell you the story and can I offer practical help? You know what you're called to do? Find someplace where you can be a practical help and clearly articulate the gospel. It must not be word only because if we speak in tongues of angels but have not love, why will somebody listen to you unless they're convinced that you love them? And to convince people you love them, there has to be some action involved. So I guess we could all reflect on that and say, who are you helping? Are there any wolves that need your help? Ah, they don't deserve it. Wolves don't. Who are you helping and who are you telling? Verse 10, but when you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even uh, the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. So Jesus has something to say, not only about the task of the one sent, but also about the hardness of hearts where they're being sent. Not only are they wolves, but he's like, you guys got to be prepared. It's not going to go great in every town. In fact, you need an exit strategy. And I think this is one of the hardest parts of ministry is what to do when you feel rejected. What to, what to do when you really served people and you really loved them. But then at the end of it, you have a deep sense, not of victory, but of rejection. And it's true that we serve a crucified Savior. His best friend, you know, his, two of his best friends, one of them betrayed him, another one denied him. Like, he knows that feeling, and yet still, it is terrible. So Jesus says, look, as you, go, as you get sent out, there's going to be some victory here. You're going to have power over spirits, and I want you to go heal and, and preach and all of that stuff. But look, some of you are going to go into towns that go, hey, little lamb. We don't want your message here. In fact, I think about this like knocking the, the feet, uh, you know, wiping your, the dust of your feet off of a town that has rejected the message. I wonder if they were like, oh, you know, like, can you imagine going into town and going, hey, I want to tell you that we found the Messiah and he's on his way. He's coming this way. And the kingdom of God, the very kingdom of God is drawing near to you and having the town go, we don't care. And then you go, fine, I'll wipe the dirt off of your, the dust off your feet and have, I bet you there was a lot of indifference even to that. Who cares? You can take your like hippie message of like the kingdom of God or whatever, take it somewhere else. We have the law. And I think we still wrestle with that. What do we do with rejection? I bet if you've tried sharing the gospel with people, you've felt this. Because while everyone needs the gospel, man, it is a narrow road and few find it. Not everybody wants the gospel. But I think Jesus doesn't want us shying away from the second part of this message. That the kingdom of God is near to you and there are great consequences for following Jesus. But there are also consequences for not. And these people, even if they get ignored doing it, 
I think is in, in modern you know, way to say it would be they have, to, they have to tell the truth about the heavens and they have to tell the truth about hell. And if the best you can do in your office, neighborhood, wherever, where there's rejection, go, hey, just one more time, I just want to tell you Jesus loves you and has made a place for you if you will say yes to him. And if you say no to him and go this on your own, then there's eternal danger waiting for you. Verse 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on, uh, on that day for Sodom than for... I mean, do you think they went, why, why are we talking about Sodom, Jesus? It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom for, than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the mighty works done, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would, have been, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it would have been more bearable if, in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you, be brought down, you, will, you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This is serious stuff. When he starts saying things like, like, you know, Tyre and Sidon. When he says woe, you know, woe is the opposite of blessing. Blessing is a, is a state of, you know, oh, how happy. Blessing is, is living in a state of, of happiness. Woe is the state of danger. He says, woe to you. And it's so interesting that in this like, paragraph, he says, the state of, uh, uh, of towns that you think are so far away, Tyre and Sidon are out there on the coast, and everybody knows they're super anti-Jew. They're super anti-Yahweh. And Sodom, that's like the ancient dirtbag city. He says, no, actually, if they had heard what we said in these Jewish Galilean towns that are looking for the Savior, they would have repented. The state of blessedness in an area is usually measured by economic matrix, uh, metrics, isn't it? Hey, how's the city doing? Oh, you know, sales are strong. Right? Isn't that right? Uh, poverty's down. Um, jobs are up. That's how we typically measure how an area is doing. And Jesus says, man, I need you to put on a different set of eyeballs. Because while these Jewish towns up north seem like they're doing fine, actually they rejected me. And they're in a state of woe. There's danger there. And so as we go out, all these towns that are in, are in danger are Jewish towns. Tyre and Sidon and, of course, Sodom were notoriously anti-Yahweh. Probably some of these guys were from these towns, right? Like, like I bet some of these, like as they say Capernaum, and uh, there are people in this 72 or 70 that, that were from these towns in Galilee. They are the poor in spirit who have found the blessed life in following Jesus. The hard-hearted religious folks back home are in danger. Man, I wonder if you and I just might want to realize, hey, missionaries, hey, ministers, Hey, people who Jesus is sending into our culture, don't be surprised if this is the state of our world too. 
And again, this might be frustrating at times, but that's not to say it isn't powerful. The 72 return with joy in verse 17. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The commentators have some discussion on whether he's talking about he saw that in his spirit right then, or if he's talking about the original fall of Satan. And they're like, you're not going to believe this. Your name is more powerful than Satan. And Jesus is like, bro, I saw Satan fall. Like, I know. This is an old story, not a new one. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Like, what is the blessed life? Missionaries, those that Jesus is sending into the world, what is it you are after? If you are after all of the wolves going, we think you're a great lamb, you might be in the wrong mission. Do not rejoice. And anything except that your name is written in heaven. This is primarily a spiritual battle. And then Jesus in verse 21 through 24 turns and he himself gives the example of what they should do. And he, he says, you know, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. I love that because the people standing around are like, Jesus, we get it. You, it's been revealed to us. And then Jesus goes, God, I'm so grateful that it's just these dummies that get it. And it's not the wise and powerful that, you know, in the, ten, in, in the palace, they're still not getting it. But all these peasants, they're figuring it out. That's me. That's you. So it's these simple people who have found the secret to life. They've repented and left their own life. They followed and sat at Jesus' feet. They heeded the call to, to go and proclaim the good news. They're witnessing the time that generations of their fathers have longed to see, um, but it, was, it, it hasn't made them famous or it hasn't made them powerful. It has made them holy and in relationship with Jesus. So I told you we wanted to walk through that passage and just ask you one question. And here's the question. Would you go? Like I wonder if, you, if we were in the crowd. It's not just 72 people following Jesus, it's a crowd. And I wonder how it happened. I wonder if, you know, say Philip walks over and goes, hey, Jesus wants to talk to you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Guess I'll go talk to Jesus. And you get there and others are starting to fill in. And when about 70 of you get in the room, Jesus goes, hey guys, remember how I sent out the 12? Well, I'm going to send you guys out now too. I want you to go ahead and I want you to go tell people that the kingdom is coming near and I want you to tell them everything that you've seen. Tell them about the miracles. Tell them who I am and I want you to go. But look, I don't want you to be aggressive in any way. In fact, I want you to think of yourselves like a little defenseless lamb. And I want you to go and I want you to understand that I'm sending you out in places where people can be absolutely terrible. It's like going into a wolf pack. And not only that, but there's going to be rejection. And while you're going and you feel lonely, instead of like rebelling, no, instead of that, would you just commit it to prayer? Would you go or would you go, I don't really see myself as a lamb. I don't, I don't really like rejection. And there's just something else I could do, something from here. I like the, I love the healing part, Jesus. Can we do that again? I love the kingdom of God talk. I love being in this community. Go out. Would you go? If Jesus tapped you on the shoulder 
if it meant that you just had to soak everything in prayer, if it, meant that, if it meant rejection, if it meant that you don't get to fight back, if it meant that you just healed and cared and loved, even for people who are obviously wolves, even if it meant doing, um, undoing your idea of what the good life is, if it meant frustration sometimes, if, if the only blessing promised was that you have a relationship with God, that your name's in heaven, if that's the only thing you were promised, would you go? Will you go? Will love and grace be all that comes out of you this week? Will you clearly tell the story of the empty tomb with courage? Will you not fight back when you're insulted, but rather forgive? Will you repent of any other, message, uh, any other mission and answer the call to be sent? I don't know where Jesus might send you. Almost every missionary that I've heard tell their story, though, it starts with something like this. I was in a church where the pastor preached too long, but then he said, if God sent you, would you go? Just tell yes to Jesus right now if you will go where he sends you. And something happened in my heart, and right then I said, I'll go. If you send me, I go. I'll go. I don't know if he's going to send you to your next door neighbor or if he's going to send you to the Ukraine, but would you go? Because I know it starts with us looking up and going, in light of the forgiveness of my sins, send me. Are you willing to go and pray as you go, like a lamb among wolves? In Satan-defeating power of Jesus, into all the places that you will be this week.